When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another week of Scripture Study here on Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm so grateful that we get to spend time together in the Scriptures every week. I'm sorry I haven't been able to keep up as well as I'd like to on the comments. You're, the things that you're sharing are awesome. Great insights, wonderful questions. I really do hope and intend to catch up as much as possible. But I really am amazed at the number of people all around the world who are striving to become unshaken in their faith by giving the Scriptures the attention that they deserve. I know these videos tend to be long, and there are a lot of them. There's just so much incredible truth to be had in the Book of Mormon. So I hope that you receive this in the spirit that it's given. Thank you for being a part of this growing community. Thank you for spending time in the Scriptures. Thank you for wanting to feast upon the words of Christ. I spend so much of my time trying to help people navigate their crises of faith that being able to interact with people who are fortifying their faith is a comfort to me. So thank you. Today we'll be studying Helaman chapters 13 through 16. We get to spend our day with Samuel the Lamanite. If there was ever a Book of Mormon figure tailor-made for childhood family home evening lessons, this is the one. Stand them up on the counter in the kitchen or up on the top bunk and have them cry repentance to the family while you're throwing stuff at them. Just be sure to miss. Or if you're the more courageous type yourself and your children are still young enough that they haven't developed much of an aim, then you be Samuel the Lamanite. Stand up on something and have them chuck stuff at you. President Irene said he used to do that with his children when they were little. And unfortunately, they tended not to keep things scripturally accurate. He got hit a lot. But think about what a little child would know about this story, even if they're just acting it out at home. Because these will be the key elements of what we talk about in this lesson today. Number one, they'll know his name, Samuel, but they'll know that he's a Lamanite. That always seems to go together, Samuel the Lamanite. We typically don't say Alma the Nephite, but Samuel is always referred to as the Lamanite. So there's a component to this story about someone that is different, a minority figure, as racial issues seem to be gripping the attention of the United States at this time. I think there's some lessons that we can learn from Samuel the Lamanite. Secondly, we know that he couldn't be hit by the stones and arrows that were thrown at him. And so there's something to be learned from that element of the story about what people do to try to silence prophets and whether or not they're successful in those attempts. And then third, most kids know that Samuel the Lamanite prophesied of the birth of Jesus, that there would be a day, night, and day with no darkness. And by that, the people here in the Americas would know that the Son of God had been born. And yet there's so much more to the prophetic nature of Samuel the Lamanite's message that we can unpack today, specifically regarding the principle of prophecy. In fact, that's something that Jesus himself drew upon when he came among the Nephites just a few chapters later in 3 Nephi. If you remember when he calls Nephi, the prophet, forward and says, bring your scriptures with you. I want to look at them. You can almost hear Nephi gulp in the background like, uh-oh, what, what's he looking for? And as the Lord looks through Nephi's scriptures, he asks him, wait a minute, Samuel the Lamanite prophesied about the resurrection that would take place at my resurrection. Why didn't you write that down? 
In fact, the way the Savior puts it sheds some interesting light on Samuel. 3 Nephi 23.9, he says, I commanded my servant Samuel. Great title coming from the Lord. Samuel is not just anybody. He is my servant. My servant Samuel the Lamanite. So even the Lord specifies that element. That he should testify unto this people that at the day that the Father should glorify his name in me, that there were many saints who should arise from the dead and should appear unto many and should minister unto them. And then Jesus said unto them, Was it not so? That's when Nephi says, Well, of course, that's exactly what happened. And then the Lord says, Well, why didn't you write it down? And then Nephi made sure that it was. So we seem to have a corrected version of the book of Helaman because that prophecy is in here. But I love that question that the Lord asks at the end of that. Was it not so? Wasn't that prophecy fulfilled? Didn't time vindicate the prophet? That's not even the only time that happened. In Mormon chapter 1 verse 19, Mormon, who must have learned from Nephi's mistake and made sure if there's anybody whose prophecies I'm going to make sure are included and the fulfillment is included as well, it's going to be Samuel the Lamanite. He's the Lord's servant and the Lord is making sure that we've got this stuff in here. In that verse, Mormon says, the power of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, even unto the fulfilling of all the words of Abinadi, there's one, and also Samuel the Lamanite. And then one chapter later, Mormon adds, the Nephites began to repent of their iniquity and began to cry even as had been prophesied by Samuel the prophet. One of the few times he's not specified as a Lamanite there. Hopefully we know him by now. But there you have it. In two instances, Mormon is pointing out what Samuel prophesies does get fulfilled. Was it not so? You better believe it was. Now children seem to remember that one prophecy of Samuel about the signs associated with the birth of Jesus. But there were actually three. In fact, I would add there's four prophecies that he makes, but three main ones. The first one in order is that eventually the Nephite nation, their civilization, will be completely destroyed. The second is about the birth of Jesus. The third is about the death of Jesus and all the signs that would accompany his crucifixion. And the fourth, I don't know if you'd agree with me and call this a prophecy, but I think I'd stand by it. And that is simply a prophecy running throughout his entire message to repent. Now, is repentance a prophecy? I think so. In Moses chapter 6, the Lord says to Enoch, Enoch, my son, prophesy unto this people. And you picture Enoch going, well, what am I supposed to say? What, what future event am I supposed to predict? And the Lord tells him the first one. It's kind of baby steps since you're just becoming a prophet. He says, prophesy unto this people and say unto them, repent. So the Lord seems to suggest that repentance is a prophecy. One chapter later in Moses 7, the Lord again comes to Enoch and says, prophesy. And this time he prophesied in a more traditional future prediction of coming events kind of a way. But then, just a few verses later, the Lord continues, go to this people and say unto them, repent. So twice in Enoch's experience, prophesy connected with the cry to repent. I think this makes a little bit more sense when you read it through the lens of Revelation chapter 19, where he defines the spirit of prophecy as not predicting the future per se, but having a testimony of Jesus. And isn't that what drives our repentance to begin with? Now, this doesn't mean we have to completely redefine prophecy and eliminate that foretelling aspect of it, because I do think that's part of our testimony of Jesus and our calls to repent. If I believe in the Savior, can I predict the future? Can I prophesy on the big picture issues? Yes, I can prophesy that you will be forgiven of your sins as you repent of them. 
I can prophesy that Jesus will be forgiving, that he will welcome you home, outstretched arms. I can prophesy that his grace will be sufficient for you. I can prophesy that he will return and come with healing in his wings. My testimony of Jesus is my prophecy of better days to come. The next time you stand up and bear your testimony of the Savior in Fast and Testimony meeting, please understand that you are prophesying that there is hope and help and healing ahead. And similarly, every time you cry repentance, you are prophesying too. You repent and you will be forgiven. I'm sure the day will come for us as it did for Nephi, when the Lord will say, I told you I'd forgive you. You repented and you have been. Was it not so? Hasn't it all happened just like I said it would? In fact, of all of Samuel's prophecies at the end of the book of Helaman, the prophecy to repent is the one that keeps coming up over and over and over through these chapters. It is the golden thread that is woven throughout the tapestry. The word repent or repentance shows up 28 times in this narrative. Four short chapters, but you see it 11 times in 13, 8 times in 14, 7 times in 15, 2 times in 16. In fact, to make that call to repent even more prophetic, it often shows up in this phrase, and except they repent, and then he does predict the future consequences of their sin. In fact, that phrase hit me last week when we were studying Helaman 7 through 12. It only dawned on me when I was editing the video and realized, wow, Nephi keeps saying that phrase. I went back and looked at them and said, yep, it's amazing what an emphasis there is on except you repent, these things will come upon our people. I was intrigued by that, so I actually went back through the Book of Mormon searching for that phrase, and it comes up often, especially when there are dire consequences of people's failure to repent. So, for example, Abinadi uses that phrase, except they repent, five times in his message to King Noah and the wicked priests. Except you repent, this is what will happen to you. Alma says it eight times in his ministry to the people of Zarahemla in chapter 5, on his mission with Amulek in 9 and 10, to his sons in 37 and 39. Captain Moroni uses the phrase twice, whether he's calling his enemies or his government to repentance. And then Nephi, this is the one that struck me last week when I was reviewing it, he says it nine times in Helaman 7 through 10. Again, he saw the wickedness of his day. These are my days, right? And was constantly saying, except you repent, this is what will come of it. There's a prophecy there. And now we get Samuel the Lamanite saying it six times in Helaman 13 and 15. In fact, I think if we take that prophecy as the underlying one throughout the entire ministry of Samuel the Lamanite, then the other three prophecies make sense. That first one, except you repent, Nephite civilization will be annihilated. That's a cry to repent. Second prophecy, Jesus will come. He's the one that is coming to make repentance possible. And it's not just his life that's going to do it. It's his death, his atonement, his crucifixion, his resurrection. If we read all three of those prophecies in the context of the prophecy to repent, then it is one overarching message that Samuel the Lamanite is trying to convey to a Nephite audience that needs to hear that message, repent, more than any other. So as we study these chapters, keep an eye out for those prophecies, all four of them. Keep an eye out specifically for the word repent 
or repentance and see what he says about it. So many powerful lessons there. And keep an eye out for Samuel's Lamanite-ness. It's an issue that we have to come to terms with, particularly in our own context of seeing past otherness and being open to messages from God through anyone. So with all that as backdrop, let's dive into chapter 13, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 80 and 6th year, the Nephites did still remain in wickedness, yea, in great wickedness. We're still spinning and spinning through the pride cycle, and they are barreling towards destruction constantly. Meanwhile, the Lamanites did observe strictly to keep the commandments of God according to the law of Moses. We are really seeing a role reversal here. We saw that earlier in Helaman when we met the Gadianton robbers. And the Lamanite plan was to hunt them down and preach the gospel to them. And by doing so, they destroyed the Gadianton robbers. Meanwhile, what was the Nephite plan? Unite with them. Empower them. If you can't beat them, join them, I guess. Well, they could have beat them through the gospel, through the word of God. The Nephites are on Satan's side of the cycle, going from pride to destruction. The Lamanites are on the Lord's side of the cycle, going from repentance and humility to prosperity. Now, since repentance is going to be such a theme throughout these chapters, think about verse 1 in the context of repentance. Nephites, that are typically thought of as the good guys, are slipping towards wickedness, whereas Lamanites, the perpetual bad guys, are the ones strictly keeping the commandments of God. In terms of repentance, what is this verse reminding us of from the very beginning? The fact that people can change and change in either direction. There will always be a need to repent. Nephites might end up becoming like Lamanites, but there will also always be the opportunity to repent. Lamanites can end up becoming like Nephites. Again, keep an eye to repentance as a theme, verse by verse by verse. And with that as the background, verse 2, it came to pass that in this year there was one Samuel, a Lamanite. I love that he goes from a Lamanite to the Lamanite. There were a lot of Lamanites, but nobody quite like Samuel that we know of, at least not by name. Reminds me of Alma the Younger when he's, his mind is trying to catch hold of this thought of one Jesus, a son of God. Well, once Alma came to know the Savior, it went from indefinite article to definite article. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, here's Samuel, a Lamanite. Give it some time. He will shortly be Samuel, the Lamanite. He came into the land of Zarahemla and began to preach unto the people. Now, sadly, we know so little about the specifics of Samuel's background. He wasn't from Zarahemla. He comes into the land. But from where? If you remember earlier, Nephi and Lehi, brothers, went down to the land of Nephi. That's where they had their experience in the prison, encircled about by fire. And many of those Lamanites converted. Was Samuel one of them? Perhaps. Remember earlier in the book of Helaman when a lot of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's headed north to get out of the wickedness of Zarahemla. Is that where Samuel's coming from? I wish we knew. I wish we knew his age. Is there any possibility that he's an extremely old man and that in his childhood he was one of Helaman's stripling warriors? No clue. But those possibilities exist. I'd love to get some additional background on this great prophet. But this much we do know. Middle of verse 2, it came to pass that he did preach many days repentance unto the people. There's the prophecy that's going to underlie the rest. And notice his persistence there. It needs to be cried many days. People may not change the first time that you invite them to. 
we may not change the first time the Spirit nudges us in a better direction. So many days, continue to hold out hope, continue to point people in a better direction. But what was their response? And they did cast him out, and he was about to return to his own land. Here's the first instance of that other principle that we see our children understanding. What do people do to try to silence a prophet? In this case, cast him out. Just get him out of here. We don't want to listen. We don't want to change. And it seems that they could have been successful. He's about to go home. Okay. Didn't have an open, receptive audience. Let me turn back in search of greener pastures. However, verse 3, the voice of the Lord came unto him that he should return again. This is Alma being told, go back to Ammonihah. I don't care if they rejected you the first time. This is Abinadi. After a few years, go back in disguise and cry repentance again. So as persistent as Samuel had been in verse 2, it still wasn't persistent enough for the Lord. Give them another chance. That's what repentance is all about. I remember when my youngest daughter was about to be baptized, and we asked her older brother to give the opening prayer at the baptismal service. And that son must have remembered my childhood stories of my own baptism, where it took three times, three tries, before my entire body was immersed in the water. And so her big brother, in his prayer, said, Heavenly Father, please bless them to get it right the first time. I guess he was hoping to spare us the embarrassment of doing it wrong. But it hit me after that prayer, that's not what baptism is for. Baptism is all about getting additional chances, since we never do it right the first time. I think we should remember that any time a priest messes up the sacrament prayer and has to do it over again. That's what the sacrament is for. The sacrament itself is proof that God is okay with us not getting things right the first time. Keep putting them under the water until you get it right. Keep repeating the prayer until it's said perfectly. Just keep trying. Preach repentance many days. Get cast out. I don't care. Return again. People deserve every chance we can give them. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 3. And when you go, prophesy. The call to repentance will be the ultimate one. But prophesy unto the people whatsoever things should come into your heart. Now that's gutsy. It's like, um, actually, could you put it into my heart right now and then I'll, I'll write it all out and so I'll know what to say when I go back to the Nephites? It's like, no. Just open your mouth and it shall be filled. You go, you return, and begin to prophesy. Whatever I put in your heart. Jacob had that experience back in the book of Jacob. Just go to the temple and open your mouth and teach the things that I will tell you. You sure you don't want to tell me in advance? No, no. It'll come out with power if you just go for it. Now, please don't use this as justification for not preparing well when you have to speak or teach. That's not what I'm saying. I had a wise bishop years ago. had a profound influence on my wife and me. And he always used to say, you can't over-prepare, but you can over-structure. And he was famous for having sacrament meeting speakers come into his office before sacrament meeting. And if they had a written talk, he would take it and go, oh, this looks amazing. And then he'd throw it away and say, you're going to be great up there. You've done all the preparation. Now just teach by the Spirit. And in a way, the Lord is asking Samuel to do something similar. Just go back and prophesy. Open your mouth. I will fill it. Say whatever I put into your heart. Now in verse 4, it came to pass that they would not suffer that he should enter into the city. So once again, what are people doing to try to silence the prophet? Cast him out in two. Don't let him in in four. And what are prophets doing? Persisting as always. This time, 
he went and got upon the wall thereof. This is like Alma going back into Ammonihah from another way. If your first or fifth or fiftieth attempt to cry repentance is unsuccessful, try something different. In fact, look for their wall and start pushing on bricks to see if any of them are loose. If this wall is the barrier that's keeping you or the Spirit or God out of their lives, is there any way to breach that wall? Any way to poke a hole through it or stand on top of it to occupy that liminal space? Try to bridge the barrier between them and a loving Father in heaven? There on that wall, he stretches forth his hand and cries with a loud voice, unmistakable message, and prophesied unto the people. There's that word again. Whatsoever things the Lord put into his heart. It's like, okay, here goes nothing. I'm opening my mouth. Please don't fill it with my foot. And what was it filled with? Verse 5. Behold, I, Samuel, a Lamanite. So this is how he introduces himself again. He'd already been among them. Chances are they recognized that he was different, that he was a Lamanite. We'll see a little bit later that that's one of the reasons they cast him out to begin with. And yet he owns it unapologetically. If you're opposed to me because of my difference, well, I'm going to stand by that difference. If this makes you uncomfortable, so be it. But this is who I am. I am a Lamanite, and I speak the words of the Lord which he doth put into my heart. And here goes. Behold, he hath put it into my heart to say unto this people that the sword of justice hangeth over this people, and four hundred years pass not away save the sword of justice falleth upon this people. So there's the first of what we would consider a real prophecy, a prediction of future events. Sure enough, fast forward to the books of Mormon and Moroni, and you will see that prophecy fulfilled. The sword of justice falling upon the Nephite nation. Verse 6, Yea, heavy destruction awaiteth this people, and it surely cometh unto this people, and nothing can save this people, except one thing. Here's your only hope repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, who surely shall come into the world, there's a preview of big prophecy number two, and shall suffer many things and shall be slain for his people. There's preview of prophecy number three. All in the context of you've got to repent, which is our undergirding, overarching prophecy throughout it all. Five and six contain all of them. The Nephite nation is going to be destroyed, but Jesus is going to come. And he's going to atone and die for us. So we have to, and we can, repent. Here's his whole message in a nutshell. Now verse 7, Behold, an angel of the Lord hath declared it unto me, and he did bring glad tidings to my soul. Almost every time in Scripture, whenever glad tidings are mentioned, or its larger version, glad tidings of great joy, that's always Christmas. That's always the coming of Christ. And behold, I was sent unto you to declare it unto you also, that ye might have glad tidings. But, bad news, you would not receive me. What are you holding back? What are you stiff-arming? Happiness. You're keeping joy at bay. All you want to hold on to is your wickedness, and yet wickedness never was happiness. Verse 8, his prophecy continues, Because of the hardness of the hearts of the people of the Nephites, Except they repent, there's that full phrase, here's what will happen. I will take away my word from them. I will withdraw my spirit from them. 
and I will suffer them no longer, and I will turn the hearts of their brethren against them. Notice everything he just said. Unless you repent, if you don't change, what will happen? I'll take away my word and withdraw my spirit. What's the armor of God again? The sword is the word and the spirit. He's just warning them that a sword is hanging over the Nephite society. And it's because you've rejected the sword of God. Pick your sword. Choose one of them. If you will lay hold upon God's word and God's spirit, then there's no danger of the other sword ever dropping. But force God to remove that sword, to withdraw that spirit and that word. And it's only a matter of time until the other sword drops. When he says, I will suffer them no longer. Remember back in verse 6, he shall suffer many things, there's the atonement, and be slain for his people, there's the crucifixion both his sufferings and death, as the Book of Mormon frequently associates. So which kind of suffering do you want? He will suffer for your sins, but he will not suffer your failure to repent. There comes a time where the Spirit ceases to strive with us. Mormon will talk about that more. So which kind of suffering do you choose? Or the last line, I will turn the hearts of their brethren against them. Why? Because your hearts are so hardened that you refuse to turn them to the Lord? There's some beautiful literary ironies here in what Samuel is saying. He continues to warn them about that impending doom 400 years from now and says in verse 11, but, so there is a way to avoid all this, if ye will repent and return unto the Lord your God. Beautiful redundancy there. Repenting is returning to God. And if you return, then the Lord your God will turn away his anger. Yea, thus saith the Lord, Blessed are they who will repent and turn unto me, but woe unto him that repenteth not. I love that concept of turning. You turn to me, and I will turn to you. Turn away from your sin, and I'll turn away from my anger. Repentance is reconciliation. It is bringing these two warring parties back together at one with each other. That is what the at one meant, the atonement is all about. In the meantime, verse 12, the only thing that's keeping you afloat is a righteous minority in Zarahemla. This is exactly what Alma and Amulek were saying in Ammonihah. The only reason that this place is still afloat is because the righteous that are here and their prayers are keeping that sword of justice from falling. Remember, it was after the righteous had either fled from Ammonihah or were martyred there in the flames that Ammonihah no longer had any protective power. And sure enough, the Lamanites came in and leveled that city in one day. It's the righteous in Zarahemla now that are doing likewise. Verse 13, if it weren't for the righteous who were in this great city, I would cause that fire should come down out of heaven and destroy it. Just wait for the destruction that precedes the coming of Christ, and we'll see some of this. Verse 14, Behold, it is for the righteous' sake that it is spared. That's a beautiful principle regarding repentance as well. If you'll just capitalize righteous. It is for the righteous' sake. Righteousness personified. It is for Christ's sake that we are spared when we repent. The Father looks upon his beloved Son and turns away his anger as we are forgiven and saved through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. It is for the righteous' sake that we are spared. But cast the righteous out, and you have no hope. 
eliminate Jesus from your life. And there's no ability to repent, neither is there desire to. If you cast out the righteous from among you, then ye shall be ripe for destruction. So woe unto this great city because of the wickedness and abominations which are in her. In verse 15, he adds Gideon to the list, which is tragic. Because if you go back to Alma chapter 7, that incredible chapter where truths regarding the atonement of Jesus Christ are taught there that aren't taught that clearly anywhere else in Scripture. Remember, that's where Alma went after crying repentance in Zarahemla. Zarahemla was tough talk, cries to repent, self-examination, right? And yet Alma's message to Gideon so I dreamed that you'd be faithful, and that's exactly what I found. Well, imagine how far they have fallen. In 17, he says, Behold, a curse shall come upon the land, saith the Lord of hosts, because of the people's sake who are upon the land, because of their wickedness and their abominations. What an irony that here a Lamanite is talking to Nephites about a curse. Now again, Back in Alma 3, where we had that lesson on what is the curse upon the Lamanites, it is not skin color, it is separation from God. Well, again, however the Nephites associated curses and marks and Nephites versus Lamanites, interesting that a Lamanite would be warning Nephites of curses. I think that's a word that's going to hang heavy on the Nephite ear. Also interesting in 17, it's because of the people's sake. Even God's justice is for our sake. Even destruction, when we hit that part of the pride cycle, it's for our sake in hopes that we are woken up, stirred up to repentance. Redemptive turbulence is what Elder Maxwell called it. Even that curse, even discipline can be for your sake if it helps us change and turn. Verse 18, it shall come to pass, saith the Lord of hosts, yea, our great and true God, that whoso shall hide up treasures in the earth shall find them again no more because of the great curse of the land, save he be a righteous man and shall hide it up unto the Lord. That's the specific promise that Mormon was referring to when he talked about the fulfillment of one of Samuel's prophecies, that Nephite treasures by his day had become slippery. I just can't hold on to them. I take my wealth or even a tool or a weapon and I lay them down and I can't find them in the morning. I'm starting to wonder if my garage is cursed. I think my children help things become slippery in the garage at least. But there actually is a connection here that I see with children. In the lesson that I taught on Alma 37, I shared that in that one year that my oldest daughter was born, I studied the scriptures, standard work, start to finish, trying to understand lessons on fatherhood. And this was another place that the Spirit whispered, your treasure is about to come into your family, your little girl. Don't ever let her get slippery. Unless you are a righteous father, unless you strive to hide her up to the Lord, then you will see her slip through your fingers. You will not be able to hold on to that treasure that God has given you. I can't imagine a worse curse than that. Whatever your treasures might be, Children is only one way to expand what this might mean. But being able to hold on to treasures that really matter to us. Treasures in heaven where moth and rust doth not corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal. Well, our repentance and our righteousness is what tightens our grip on those things. Verse 19 explains it a little more. 
For I will, saith the Lord, that they shall hide up their treasures unto me. Are we commending them to God? And cursed be they who hide not up their treasures unto me. For none hideth up their treasures unto me, save it be the righteous. He that hideth not up his treasures unto me, cursed is he, and also the treasure. And none shall redeem it because of the curse of the land. No redemption without repentance. He digs deeper into this idea of treasures in 20 and 21 and 22. Remember, it's setting your hearts upon the things of the world that was part of the root of the problem here. The pride cycle, again, it's prosperity that leads them towards pride. The goals of murdering to get gain that characterize the Gadianton robbers. Nephites seem to have treasures on the mind often. So notice what Samuel says to them. Verse 20, the day shall come that they shall hide up their treasures because they have set their hearts upon riches. And because they've set their hearts upon their riches and will hide up their treasures when they shall flee before their enemies, because they will not hide them up to me, cursed be they and also their treasures. And in that day shall they be smitten, saith the Lord. 21, again, you are cursed because of your riches and also are your riches cursed because you've set your hearts upon them. So there's this dual curse, both the object as well as the person that is so focused on it. This unhealthy emphasis on the things of the world ruins both those things and me. And again, when we're thinking in context of the pride cycle, it was the Lord that blessed you with it. He wanted you to prosper, but you allowed that prosperity to pull you towards pride and ultimately towards destruction. In that instance, something God had intended as a blessing ended up becoming a curse. There's a fascinating phrase in the book of Malachi where the Lord, and this is the same book where the Lord is talking about robbing God, which suggests that people are putting, setting their hearts on things in wrong ways. But in Malachi 2.2, the Lord warns, I will curse your blessings. Fascinating phrase. How, how does a blessing become a curse? I will curse your blessings. Well, that's exactly that pivot point in the pride cycle when you hit prosperity. God blessed you with it. He wanted you there. But that's when the adversary's eyes light up, thinking, here's my opportunity. I will turn the blessings of God into a curse that pulls them away from God. And that's not just wealth that does it. Anything that you treasure up, but not unto the Lord. If you focus on that gift at the expense of the giver of the gift, then that blessing becomes a curse. And what was meant to tie you to God or to allow you to share what God has given you with others, it ends up drawing you away from him instead. Notice how those are related at the end of 21 and into 22. You've set your hearts upon those things and have not hearkened unto the words of him who gave them unto you. You see how Samuel's starting to differentiate between gift and giver? He does it again in 22. You do not remember the Lord your God in the things which he hath blessed you, but you do always remember your riches. You see how we distinguish between gift and giver? Oh, I, I love the gift. So focused on it. I've set my heart upon it. But we've cut it off from the hand that offered it to us in the first place. We've dusted off the divine fingerprints that are all over that gift that he's given us. I'm fascinated by what he says here. You always remember your riches, not to thank the Lord your God for them. Yea, your hearts are not drawn out unto the Lord, but they do swell with great pride, there's pride cycle again, unto boasting and great swelling 
Interesting what's happening to the heart here. Is it drawn out to God in gratitude? Or is it swelling with pride? Remember Alma talked about swelling in our soul when God places goodness in it and we accept, we experiment upon the word. Well, this is a different kind of swelling. But to me, verse 22, I've never seen a better passage to help us understand the principle of being thankful to instead of just being thankful for. I think that preposition makes all the difference. We can think we're being grateful as we count our many blessings and name them one by one. But if we're only thankful for and have somehow forgotten to be thankful to, namely thankful to the Lord, then we have separated gift from giver. And honestly, I think the only reason God gave us the gift to begin with is in hopes that it would establish an ongoing relationship with the giver of the gift. It's about seeing him behind everything he's given us. There have been times where I've tried to be more intentional in my prayers based on this principle. And instead of just, oh, and thanks for this, 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 and this, to focus more on the person behind it all. So instead of, I'm thankful for this thing, to specifically say, I am grateful to thee for this gift that thou hast given. Then it becomes less of a list and more of an expression of love. You ever been to a child's birthday party where the child, in their innocence, perhaps not understanding, it's all about the stuff, and they tear into one gift and then they're on to the next and tear into that and on to the next. There have been a few that I have seen, some sweet, tender-hearted child who almost it forgets the gift, not in excitement to get to the next one, but in excitement to thank the giver of the gift. That this thing was just a means to connect with the person. And so they open it and they're excited, but they lay it aside to give that friend a big hug, to express their gratitude. I think, I think there's something powerful there. Not enough to be thankful for, be thankful to. We'll see that repeated later in the chapter. When you see in verse 33, when these people are lamenting because they didn't repent, and they say, Oh, that I had repented and had not killed the prophets and stoned them and cast them out. Another evidence of people trying to silence the prophet. Yea, in that day ye shall say, Oh, that we had remembered the Lord our God in the day that he gave us our riches. Then they wouldn't have become slippery. Then we wouldn't have lost them. Notice Samuel isn't saying, oh, if only we'd been more grateful for that stuff. No, he's saying, oh, if only we had remembered the Lord our God when he gave us these blessings. I think that's one of the things that allows us to stay in the prosperity stage of the pride cycle, constantly remembering the Lord as the source of those gifts. Then we'll use it for the, the reasons he gave them to us in the first place. Before you seek for those riches or whatever it might be in your particular element of prosperity, seek for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, you shall obtain riches or whatever it is if you seek them because you'll seek them with the intent to do good. He knows that about you. You've established that relationship in everything that comes your way. You're looking back to the source of it. Is this what you want me to do with it? Again, this is more stewardship than ownership. Now go back to where we left off, verse 24, what's going to keep us from that? Woe unto this people, because of this time which has arrived, that you do cast out the prophets, and do mock them, and cast stones at them, and do slay them, and do all manner of iniquity unto them, even as they did of old time. Now I think he's getting personal here. 
You do cast them out? Well, he'd already been there, done that. You do cast stones at them and try to slay them? Well, that's coming up in a later chapter. And then when he says you do mock them, I wonder if that's one he's speaking of from personal experience too. And is that where his Lamanite-ness might be hiding? Perhaps those hard-hearted Nephites had thrown around the word curse themselves if they had been mocking Samuel, a Lamanite, when the curse of God had nothing to do with Samuel's skin, since he was not cursed. He was righteous. He was one with God. There was no separation. It was the Nephites that were separated. They were the ones that were cursed. Whatever that mocking may have entailed, and that is still a huge part of how people attack faith in our day. Like I've said before, that's the topic of my research in graduate school. And it boils down so frequently to mockery. How do I limit your effectiveness in teaching the gospel? How do I puncture a prophet's credibility? I mock. This is the great and spacious building, pointing the finger and mocking at those that are partaking of the fruit. We often feel how little a thing laughter is, and yet it does so much of the heavy lifting when it comes to pulling people away from their faith. Now, 25 and 26, he gets a little more specific here. Now, when you talk, you say, if our days had been in the days of our fathers of old, oh, we would have not slain the prophets. We wouldn't have stoned them. We wouldn't have cast them out. Of course we would have accepted them. Of course we would have believed in their message. But 26, here's the reality. You're worse than they are. For as the Lord liveth, if a prophet comes among you, and there's one staring you in the face right now, if he declares unto you the word of the Lord, which testifieth of your sins and iniquities, in other words, if he comes with bad news, a call to repent, then what's your response? You're angry with him. You cast him out. Exhibit A is, again, standing right in front of you. You seek all manner of ways to destroy him. And you're about to get more creative and more violent shortly. Yea, you will say that he is a false prophet, that he's a sinner, that he's of the devil, and all this because he testifies that your deeds are evil. Now, on the other hand, 27, if a man should come among you and say, oh, do this, there's no iniquity, nothing wrong with that, or do that, you'll not suffer. This is the eat, drink, and be merry mentality that we saw back in 2 Nephi. Yea, if he says, walk after the pride of your own hearts. Yea, walk after the pride of your eyes. Do whatever your heart desireth. You hear hints of the prosperity gospel there. You see shades of Nehor or Korahor. Any false prophet or antichrist who is using flattering words, in other words, saying what people want to hear, if a man comes among you and says those kinds of things, oh, of course, you'll receive him and say that he is a prophet. Oh, this is my kind of prophet. When Jesus gives some hard sayings in John chapter 6, and it offends the multitudes, and they leave him, to the point that he even wonders if his own disciples will also depart. It's so easy to gather disciples when you're telling them everything they want to hear. Isn't that what Nehor was all about? His priest craft? Priests should be paid. They should become popular. Well, and how do I garner popularity and therefore greater pay? Say what the people want to hear. Make them happy. No hard sayings here. Easy doctrine, easy on the ears. Do whatever you want. Here's the moral relativism of Korahor. You'll all be saved. There's the easy universalism of Nehor. Flattering words. There's Sherem. Or Gedianton, for that matter. If you get that kind of prophet, 28, 
you'll lift him up. There's Ramiumptum of your own. You will give unto him of your substance. You'll give him your gold, your silver. Clothe him with costly apparel. Because he speaketh, there's our phrase, flattering words unto you. He saith that all is well. Ooh, there's another phrase we're familiar with, right? All is well in Zion. Yea, Zion prospereth. No need to repent. All of these messages are trying to eliminate the need to repent on our part. You're fine where you are. Either you're not doing anything wrong, or the Lord will look at on those things with a blind eye anyway. 29, oh, you wicked, you perverse generation, you hardened, stiff-necked people. How long will you suppose that the Lord will suffer you? How long will you suffer yourselves to be led by foolish and blind guides? You're the ones always mocking us for our foolishness. Well, there is some foolishness here. There is some blindness and it's in the guides that you've chosen for yourselves. This is worse than the blind leading the blind. This is the blind leading the sighted because the sighted have chosen blind guides for themselves because they're not going to tell me where to go. They'll let me do whatever I want. He sums it up at the end. Yea, how long will you choose darkness rather than light? Well, as long as they can, right? There's an incredible verse about this in 2 Timothy where Paul talks about this same concept in his day. He warns that there would be those that cannot endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. I love that metaphor. You ever had an itch somewhere on your back that you just can't reach, and so you're asking somebody, oh, can you get that? Can you scratch it for me? Oh, a little higher, oh, a little to the left. Oh, yeah, oh, that feels good. Well, having itching ears, I, I want somebody to just scratch it right there. Tell me something I want to hear. No hard sayings. Don't make me feel uncomfortable in my lifestyle. You see, I have certain lusts and I want you to reassure me that I'm okay with them. So let me heap up teachers after my own lust that will justify me in committing any sin that I want. I won't even call it sin. These Nephites had itching ears. I find it interesting even earlier on when he said in verse 25, when they're like, oh, well, if we only would have lived in the olden days, those prophets, now those were real prophets. We see similar things taught in the New Testament. And what's interesting is we always seem to be one dispensation behind acceptance. It's like in the days of Moses, they're like, oh, you're no Abraham. And then in the days of Jesus, they're like, well, you're no Moses. And then in the days of Joseph Smith, well, you're no Jesus. Of course, that's true. He never claimed to be. But you're no prophet. We're just going to stick with Christianity. We're always one dispensation behind. And I think it's easy to be that because time has vindicated the prophets. By Moses' day, time had proven that Abraham was right. By Jesus' day, Moses' credentials were set. By Joseph Smith's day, you have a predominantly Christian culture. The challenge is having faith in prophets before time robs us of the chance to have faith in them because we know time has vindicated them. Well, to believe in them in advance, that's what Samuel is asking. And that is something that the Nephites are not offering him at all. Well, for the rest of chapter 13, he reminds them of those slippery riches, warns them that their destruction is sure if they don't repent. Laments that they are encircled about by the angels of him who hath sought to destroy our souls. And then increases the urgency of the whole message in verse 38 when he says, Your days of probation are past. 
You have procrastinated the day of your salvation until it is everlastingly too late. Your destruction is made sure. It's the exact opposite of having your calling and election made sure. Why too late for them? Because they have sought all the days of their lives for that which they could not obtain. You have sought for happiness in doing iniquity, which thing is contrary to the nature of that righteousness which is in our great and eternal head. Can you hear Alma speaking from the dust? Wickedness never was happiness. Trying to find happiness in doing iniquity is contrary to nature. It's not how it works. It's like Alma 42. That completely goes against the law of the harvest. You cannot plant darkness and hope to harvest light. Sin never blossoms and buds into joy. That's just not the kind of seed it is. It's not in its DNA. It's completely unnatural for that cause to lead to that effect. So how does Samuel end this chapter? Same way he began it. O ye people of the land, that ye would hear my words, and I pray that the anger of the Lord be turned away from you, and that ye would repent and be saved. Start to finish, his message is one of repentance.